The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. You can follow along as I read um, Ruth 4, verse 13 through 22. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and sovereign of everything that happens in between. As we finish up this story in Ruth, a beautiful picture of your redemption plan, I pray that you would stir our hearts in worship of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I pray that your word would not return void and that it would accomplish what you would have it to here today, that no one would leave this room without making a decision of salvation or surrender to your will here today. We pray all this in your son's name and in his power. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Ruth uh, that we've been studying these last few weeks actually takes place in some pretty dark times. Uh, It takes place in a period of the nation of Israel's history that we now call the time of the Judges. In fact, you can read all about this history in the book of the Bible called Judges. It's the book that takes place right before the book of Ruth. And to be honest with you, um, it's not a good period of history for the nation of Israel. It's not a good period of history uh, for God's people. I mean, we look at the book of Ruth, and we see this almost picturesque kind of storybook uh, romance, and it really is. Uh, but it's, it's, it's almost amazing that this romance story takes place in just this downright wicked period in history. Uh, the time period of the judges, it's a time period of war. It's a time of murder. Uh, the people were so away from God that they would literally sacrifice their children to earn God's favor, something God explicitly told them to never, ever, ever do. They were so far God, they were literally sacrificing their children. Uh, There's one story where a man offers up his own daughter for rape. There's another story where this one woman gets raped and abused to death and then cut up into pieces and sent all throughout the nation. It's just a downright wicked and debauched time in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. Just everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Not what's right in God's eyes, what's right in their own eyes. And the cycle just goes down and down and down. That's the backdrop of the story of the book of Ruth. It takes place in just some barbaric times. And it's right in the middle of all this debauchery that God is laying the groundwork to save his very, very wayward children. And it's through these fallen broken people that God brings his plan to fruition. And what we're going to see in our final text this morning is that for those that believe in God, the best is always yet to come. 
Now, I know that sounds cliche, doesn't it? We hear statements like that, and we almost kind of roll our eyes. We think, okay, that just sounds like nothing more than a bunch of rosy, Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky kind of nonsense, right? I mean, many of us, we were just happy we made it here this morning, right, to the second service. You're like, I was going to come to the first, but didn't happen, so I made it to the second service. And I get it. Life is hard. Sometimes you feel like you just keep getting hit over and over and over and over again, and it feels like it's just one difficulty after another, and life never even lets you come up for air before it just smacks you with another difficulty. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, and you're you're walking through some very real pain, or you're in the middle of a a sin-filled situation, and it's just, it's causing this mess, and statements like, the best is yet to come, almost makes your stomach churn a little bit, because, I mean, come on, Nick, this is the real world. Life is hard. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's no silver lining behind the dark clouds. This is the real world, man. And in some ways, we can relate to the difficulties of the characters in our story. I mean, broken, hurting, without any real hope for the future, battling bitterness, struggling with being cynical just towards life. I mean, maybe you're here today and you're saying, no, actually, my life's pretty good. Not battling bitterness, not battling cynicism, But even in the good times, there can be this subtle danger because what happens is, in the good times, we sometimes forget how much we really need God. That was part of the problem in the book of Judges. They go into the promised land, life is good, and then they forget how much they need God, and it just leads them on their downward cycle. So I don't want to demonize good times. Thank God for them. Enjoy them. Celebrate them. They're good. But don't forget who gave them to you. And what I want to remind all of us is, is that for the, for the life of the Christian, it's never just a straight line to glory. It's never just a straight line to blessing. But we do get there. What we learn from the story of Ruth is that our story, in connection with God's story, is not over yet. So if you're here this morning and you're experiencing good times, it's going to get a whole lot better. You think life's good now, wait till you get to glory, wait till you get to heaven. Life's going to get a whole lot better. And if you're in difficult times, there is still hope. You are not without hope. No one in this room has their story over yet. If you're still breathing, your story is still being written. Your story is still going. And the story of Ruth is a sign and it's a reminder that for those of us that love God, the best really is yet to come. Sin may paint a dark picture, but the light of Jesus will always, always shine brighter. And this morning, we're going to conclude our series working our way through the story of Ruth. On your way in, you should have received a service program guide that has an outline that you can use to follow along throughout this morning's message. Also, if you're a guest here today, on the inside of that service program guide, on the top part, there's a little section called the connection card. You can go ahead and fill that out throughout the service. You'll want to drop that off at the welcome tent on your way out this morning. It's a big gray tent right out front. We have a small gift that we like to give you just to say thanks for visiting with us this morning. But one of the things that we've seen throughout this series is that God has been at work in the middle of sinful, difficult situations. God has been at work in the middle of hard times, in the middle of of bitterness. But we've also seen how through the example of Boaz, that God is also at work through wise decisions. God also works through us behaving in a prudent fashion, us following God's plan for our lives. God works throughout these circumstances. And at the beginning of verse number 13, we get the conclusion of Boaz's and Ruth's story. In many ways, the book ends with, or begins with a funeral, and it ends with a wedding. It ends with a baby. Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a baby. And then right after they get married, and nine months later, they have a baby. All the women in town, they're all celebrating. They're all excited about this event. But what's interesting is they're not celebrating Ruth and Boaz. 
What's interesting is they're actually celebrating Naomi. Look at verse number 14 again. The Bible says the women said to Naomi, to Naomi, not to Ruth, not to Boaz, they said this to Naomi. They said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor woman said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Now, can you imagine? All these women, they're all coming around. They're all celebrating for Naomi because she's got this new baby, and they're so happy they named the baby. I mean, a lot of us as young parents, like everybody's got an opinion for us. I'm so thankful for it. But sometimes it's like, I don't know who's advice to take. Imagine everybody in your life saying, this is what you're going to name your baby. Boaz didn't get to pick the name of his baby. Ruth, not even Naomi. All the women of town, they all come and they name this baby. And they name him Obed. It means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What we see here on our first point is the reversal of Naomi's story. We see the reversal of Naomi's story. This baby was a gift to God. Like we saw in verse 13, it was God that gave conception to Ruth. And so this baby was a gift from God. And it's God's answers to all of Naomi's bitterness. This baby was the, na- uh, the answer to all of Naomi's emptiness, all of her problems. She, at the beginning of the story, was a widow, but she wasn't terribly old because all the women are saying, hey, she's going to sustain you in your old age. So she still has a good chunk of her life ahead of her because there's time for this baby to grow up and become a young man and support her in her old age. She arrived in Bethlehem speaking a lament, very nearly blaming God for all the difficulties And now she's hearing a praise from all the people in her life. They're praising God for his goodness. She arrived bitter, but now she's glad. She arrived expecting no future. There's no no future for us, Ruth. There's nothing good for us. We're just basically going to die off. Arrived expecting no future. Now everyone was talking about her future and the blessings that were were in it. She arrived empty. Now her arms are full with the child. She arrived speaking calamity. Now everyone's amazed at the turn of events in her life. The good news was that God was able to make a way when there seemed no way. God literally reversed the story of Naomi's life. Naomi thought that she was alone and rejected by God. Now all her friends are telling her that the love Ruth has for her is better than seven sons. Remember, at the beginning of the story, she lost her sons. She had no sons. And now everyone's telling her the love you have from Ruth, your daughter-in-law, is better than seven sons. Seven was the number in the Bible of completion. So basically what they're saying is, Naomi, you've got it as good as it gets. This is the best. You've got the best in the love that Ruth has for you. This is a picture of God's covenantal love towards us as his children. They're telling her, Naomi, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons, and he has given you this child. She has given you this child. Imagine the feeling that Grandma Naomi had as she's holding little baby Obed. I can admit, one of my favorite parts about being a dad is I was holding, I was holding, holding them while they're a baby, holding your kids while they're a baby, and they're just totally and completely asleep, right? Like not fidgety, not squirming, but like a well-fed, completely out, conked out baby, right? It's one of the coolest feelings about being a dad. It just fills your heart in some really indescribable ways. That's what Naomi is experiencing right now. As my kids get older, this is something that I'm really going to miss. Now, I won't miss the diapers. I'm like ready for that stage to be over. But I'm going to miss just being able to hold that sleeping baby because of just the feeling that you get of holding this little child, this little baby. Imagine Naomi. 
after all the difficulties that she's gone through, she's now holding this baby. And it's not just the feeling of holding a baby. It's the knowledge that through this baby, God has literally reversed her story. Everything that she had lost, her hope for the future, somebody to carry on the family name, someone to provide for her in old age, she's now holding in the form of this baby. You see, God literally rewrote her story. We worship a God who specializes in rewriting people's stories. We worship a God, he takes outsiders and he makes them insiders. We worship a God who takes enemies and he makes them family. We worship a God who takes curses and makes them blessings. He can take sinful actions and redeem them for good. He takes empty and he makes them full. He takes the lonely and he brings them into community. He takes bitter situations and he makes them uh, pleasant. He takes bitter people and he makes them glad. We worship a God that can take famine and through that famine bring fullness. He can take the worst situation and make it beautiful. That's the story of Naomi. And that's the story of our God. God loves to reverse people's stories, and God this morning wants to reverse your story and rewrite it for his glory. You may be here this morning, and you may feel barren and dry spiritually. You may feel totally empty, like you've given and you've given and you've given and you've given, and you have nothing left to give. God this morning wants to take that emptiness, and he wants to turn it into fullness. God wants to take that broken part of your life and use it for his honor and use it for his glory. God wants to reverse your story. God wants to reverse your story and rewrite it for his glory. And then at the end of verse 17, the author of this book lifts our eyes from the details of the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. He lifts our eyes to show us how the story of Ruth really is part of God's story of redemption. In verse 17, he says very simply that this child, baby Obed, was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Now all of a sudden, everybody reading this story realizes, oh, this connects to God's big picture. This baby, this story connects to what God is doing in their nation's history. God was not only plotting to to fix the temporary circumstances of a few Jews in Bethlehem, he was laying the groundwork for King David. King David, who would literally, God would use to reverse the nation of Israel's course to all the wrong and all the sin and all the brokenness that they were experiencing. God uses King David to reverse that and the nation of Israel's history. This picture was so much bigger than what even Boaz and Ruth and Naomi would have realized. They had no idea how God was going to use this to rewrite their nation's history. And the name of David carries with it the hope of the Messiah, the new age, righteousness, peace, Freedom from pain and crying and grief and guilt. This simple little story opens like a stream into this great river of hope. The book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purpose for life and the purposes that, uh, of us of, as his people, it always connects to something bigger. Your life, my life, the things that we do in our lives, it always connects to something bigger. It connects to God's story. So whether you're serving a widowed mother-in-law, whether you're working in a field, whether you're falling in love, having a baby, all of it connects to God's big picture. It all connects to eternity. These people, they were part of so much something, something so much bigger than what they realized. Because Obed pointed to David, David pointed to Jesus, and Jesus points us forward to the resurrection of our mortal bodies, Roman 8, when death will be no more, and there will be no mourning or crying or pain because the former things are all passed away, Revelation 21. You see, for us that are in Christ, the best is always yet to come. This is the unshakable truth of the life of the men and women of faith. The best is always yet to come. But like Naomi, 
we so often look at our outward circumstances and we don't always see how it connects to God's big picture. And so there's the temptation to feel bitter towards the Lord because we can't see beyond our current situation and see what God is doing or why he is doing it. Yet just like God did for Naomi, God still provides for us a redeemer, somebody who wants to restore our life. I love what Jesus said in the book of John, chapter number 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So what God has provided for us in Jesus is somebody that wants to literally reverse our story from death to life. He ends this verse 26 by saying, do you believe this? And church, the question I want to ask us is, do you believe this? Do you believe that God can reverse your story for his glory? Do you believe that the best is still yet to come? We have seen how God has literally reversed Naomi's story. But then I also want to notice the restoration of God's people. We see how God rewrote Naomi's story. Now let's see how God redeems his people. Look at verse number 17. The Bible says, The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now you may be wondering, Pastor Nick, what in the world does this list of names have anything to do with God restoring his people? I mean, it's easy for us to get to genealogies like this, and sometimes even longer ones. It's easy for us to skip over them, because we look at it and we're like, it's just a list of names. But what we should actually do, instead of skipping over these, we should actually slow down, and we should actually dive into them. Because genealogies, they are clues to the larger story of what God's doing. These genealogies, they're signposts to God's redemptive work. They are reminders of all the stories associated with all the names of how God has worked. It's like when you get together with your family, you guys start talking about Uncle Joe, and instantly all the things about Uncle Joe come to your mind, all the funny stories, all the silly things that Uncle Joe's done, all those stories instantly come to your mind. That's what God wants these genealogies to be for us. We get those, and we read those names, and then we can see how God has worked in each one of those people's lives. And the book of Ruth ends with this short genealogy, and it ends with David, the royal forefather of Jesus. This reveals marvelous aspects of God's gracious nature that we might miss if we just skip over these lists of names. What this genealogy shows us is that grace flows where the world may only see, where the world may only see shame or cause for rejection. You say, Pastor Nick, I'm still not with you. Okay, let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis where this genealogy starts. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 38. You've got a man named Judah, one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. This man was named Judah. The Messiah was supposed to come through his lineage. So Judah wants to get a son for his wife, or he wants to get a wife for his son. Man, I am getting these all backwards today. Judah wants to get a wife for his son Ur. And so what does Judah do? He goes to a foreign nation and gets a woman named Tamar, a Canaanite woman. Sounds a little bit familiar to our story. We have Ruth, a foreign woman. Okay, all the way in Genesis 38, Judah was still stepping outside of God's plan and said, hey, I want you to marry my son. So he gets Tamar, this Canaanite woman, this foreigner, and he gives her to his son to be his wife. But Ur was such a wicked man, like wicked and debauched, that God just said, okay, okay, Ur, we're done. You're coming home. And Ur dies. Before Ur dies, like there's no children. So Judah 
then orders Ur's brothers, Onan, to replace his brother to raise up children for his dead brother. We've seen how that was the custom throughout this series. So Judah takes the next son down, Onan, and says, hey, I want you to marry Tamar, and I want you to raise up children for your brother Ur. But Onan wasn't a good guy either. In fact, as you read the story in Genesis 38, you see Onan was repeatedly willing to sleep with Tamar. He was willing to use her, but he didn't want to marry her. He didn't want to raise up children, give her children, or raise up children for his brother. He was just as wicked. He was willing to sleep with her over and over, but didn't want to give her children, didn't want to marry her. And eventually, Onan is so bad that he dies in his sin. So now you have Tamar, who's forced to live as a widow instead of a wife. You go a little forward in the story. Judah's wife dies. This is Tamar's mother-in-law. Judah's wife dies. So what does Judah do? To comfort himself, he goes and hangs out with some sheep shearers and says, I'm going to go sleep with the prostitute. By the way, that's a bad idea, okay? When you're going through a difficulty, that's not a thing you should do. But that's what Judah does. Tamar hears about this. So what does Tamar do? Well, she covers up her face, goes out, dresses up like a prostitute, waits on the side of the road for Judah to pick her up. Judah then, not realizing who she is, sleeps with her and gets her pregnant with twin boys. When Judah finds out that Tamar acted like a prostitute and got pregnant, he was so mad, he was so irate, that he ordered his men, kill her, drug her out in front of everybody and said she needs to die. But before that could happen, Tamar reveals in this soap opera twist that, hey, by the way, Judah, you're the father. (laughs) You slept with me. And so obviously Judah cancels the order. He says, Pastor Nick, I'm still not seeing how this connects. Okay, she's pregnant with twin boys. One of those twin boys is Perez. Now you see how this story connects with the story of Ruth. One of those twin boys is Perez. Perez fathers Hezron. Hezron fathers Ram. Ram fathers Amminadab. Amminadab fathers Nashon, who fathers Salmon. So Salmon is Boaz's father. Who's Boaz's mom? Rahab. If you have a cross-reference Bible, there's a good chance that it will connect this genealogy with Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter 1 is a very similar genealogy, and in Matthew chapter 1, we find out Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab, six times in Scripture, is referred to as a lying harlot. But God redeemed her so that she could carry out the name of Boaz. So ultimately, they could carry out the name of Jesus. If you keep reading this genealogy in Matthew chapter number 1, you'll see Tamar is mentioned, this victim and this seductress. You'll see Rahab the prostitute is mentioned. Later down the line, you'll see Bathsheba is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Bathsheba was the exploited victim of King David's own lust and King David's own sin. And what's interesting and remarkable is that these are the only women mentioned in the Matthew chapter 1 genealogy. If you read most genealogies, they almost never include women. Why? Because it wasn't Jewish custom to mention the women. And so here in Matthew chapter 1, he does include these women. So he goes against the custom, he goes against this culture, and he mentions them. And it's not just any women, these are women who have a past. Women who have a stigma. They have question marks over their heads. Women that were abused and, and victimized. And here's the beauty. Matthew includes these women because he wants us to realize that God can take broken, God can take sinful situations and sinful people, people who have a past, people we might not want to be around, and God can redeem them. The line of Christ is filled with just scandalous grace, all of it leading back to restoring God's people to himself. I mean, you thought your family had drama. (laughs) God literally uses the most dysfunctional family to bring about the Savior of the world, Jesus. 
Now, here's how we connect. It's easy for us to look at the book of Judges and say, man, they were bad. They were debauched. But spiritually speaking, that's all of us. Spiritually speaking, we are all the poor, widowed Moabite. Spiritually speaking, we're all the foreigner. Spiritually speaking, we're all the outsider. We have nothing that we can offer to God. We have no hope in any human means of redemption. We can't save ourselves. We have nothing to offer God. We can't say, God, save me because of this. We have nothing. Religiously, we're all unclean and we're all unworthy. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sin, which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. Before we got saved, Paul is saying, you lived according to the ways of the world. You lived according to the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Whatever our flesh wanted, we did, Paul says. Carrying out the inclination of our flesh and of our thoughts and were by nature children under wrath. You go to the book of Psalms. Psalms Psalm 53 says, we've all turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When Paul says there's none good in Romans 3, he's quoting Psalm 53. Jesus also quotes this psalm when he says, why do you call me good? There's none that's good. They're quoting this psalm, this psalm that says every single one of us have turned away. Every single one of us have done what's wicked. Every single one of us has done what's wrong. And yet the Lord in his kindness comes to redeem sinners like us. God in his love and his grace, and his mercy that we sang about. That's more, it's more, it's more. He came, and he put on flesh, and he sacrificed his flesh. He shed his blood so that he could forgive our sins. I love Isaiah 53. It says he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. Just like we saw in Judges, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The prophet Isaiah says, that's all of us. We've all done what's right in our own eyes. We've all turned to our own way. None of us have done what's good. None of us seek the Lord on our own. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord punished him, who? Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. Jesus in his love said, God, you can punish me. Yes, their sins are many, but my mercy is more. And Jesus says, you could punish me. We all fall prey to the darkness. We all fall prey to spiritual wickedness. But Jesus in his love has conquered it for us. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. And just like Boaz and Ruth get married in this unlikely but beautiful love story, so we too could be reunited back to the Father in this eternal love story where we, the church as his bride, are reunited to God the Father. And we now get to spend all of eternity with him. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone, for everyone, doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter anything, for anyone, for everyone who shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Friends, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will declare over you redeemed. And if you're here today and there's never been that moment where you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God is looking down at heaven and he so badly says, look, I know you've sinned. I know you've made mistakes. I know you haven't sought me, but I want to declare over you, redeemed. Just place your faith and trust in Jesus. Call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. 
See, when the world looked at Tamar, it would have said foreigner. It would have said victim. It would have said used. It would have said seductress. It might have even said prostitute. But when God looked at her, God said redeemed. When the world looked at Rahab, it would have said outsider, liar, harlot. But when God looked at her, God said redeemed. When the world would have looked at Ruth, it would have said stranger, pagan worshiper, widow, somebody with nothing to offer. But when God looked at her, God said redeemed. Friends, I don't know how the world what what the world will say when it looks at you. I don't know what it wants to say about your life. It might say broken. It might call you a victim. It might say you're a cheater. It might say you're a criminal. It might say you're poor. It might say you're rich. It might say you're abused. It might say you're depressed. It might say you're self-righteous. I don't know what the world will look at you and say, but God up in heaven is looking at you and he wants to declare over your life redeemed. God wants to declare over you redeemed. For those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Christ, God is looking over us and he's saying, redeemed. Yes, there may still be broken parts of your life, but I want to use them. I want to rewrite that so, I, so my name can get glory because I'm worthy. Church, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe the best is yet to come? Do we believe the best is yet to come? Maybe your life isn't going so great right now. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, okay, Pastor Nick, there's no, there's no storybook ending in my future. I mean, maybe you're here today and your life is good. Like we said earlier, it's easy to forget in good seasons how central and necessary Jesus is to our lives. If your life is going well, the question I want to ask for you is, how are you using this good season to point people in difficult seasons back to Jesus? You may be like, yeah, Pastor Nick, that's not me. No storybook ending for me. You might be sitting here thinking, I could really go for a guy like Boaz. Instead, I got stuck with this bozo, right? (laughs) Can I remind you all of something? All of us have someone better than Boaz. His name is Jesus. He's our kinsman redeemer. He has redeemed you back to God your Father so that you could be his child. He has redeemed you back to the Father so that you could experience all spiritual blessings in Christ. I'm blown away. The the book of Hebrews tells us because God's our Father and Jesus is the Son, we're joint heirs with Jesus. That means Jesus is our brother. Like, let that sink in. That's what God God wants to do for you. And if you place your faith and trust in Christ, that's what God has done for you. He has redeemed you so that you could be an heir with Jesus. All that Jesus gets for being the Son of God, we have available to us. Jesus has redeemed us so that we could be seated with Christ in heavenly places. He has redeemed us so that we can experience the abundant, joy-filled life in good seasons and in bad seasons. In difficulties and hardships, you can experience abundance and life and joy and peace that passes understanding because Jesus has won you back to the Father. Jesus has redeemed us not only so we can experience abundant life now, but eternal life forever in heaven. That's why we can stand up and loudly and boldly believe and proclaim that the best really is yet to come. Every Christian, every person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus gets the storybook ending. Every single one of us. It's true, maybe not in this life, but the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that this life is just a moment. The end of this life is not our end. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for a momentary light affliction, (laughs) I know it doesn't feel momentary and it doesn't feel light, that affliction, but Paul's giving us an eternal perspective. 
He says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's your storybook ending. This incomparable glory that lasts for all of eternity. This life is just a moment. And the story of Ruth points us towards the cross, points us towards Jesus. It points us to that storybook ending. You see, life has a way of blurring our perception of reality But the cross gives us the focus that we need so that we can rest in God's goodness. The cross helps us focus so that we can rest in God's providence. We can rest in that providence even when times are hard and they're difficult and we don't understand. The cross helps us to remember and it helps us to focus on the fact that, no, God is good. This situation may not be good and I may not understand it and I may not know why, but all I have to do is look at the cross and I can see, no, God is good. (laughs) I may doubt it in this circumstance like Naomi. I may struggle with bitterness, and I may struggle with cynicism, but all we have to do is look to the cross, and we can realize, oh, God, you are so good. The cross helps us focus, and the story of Ruth points us towards that. It helps us to rest in God's providence. If you want to get a glimpse of your storybook ending, look to the cross. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. The story of Ruth is a signpost. It's a reminder that points us towards that ending. So here's our takeaway. Take away for the sermon, take away for the series. You can rest in God's providence because God's providence always leads towards redemption. You can rest in God's providence in good times and bad times. When it's easy, when it's difficult. When you want to be bitter or you want to lift your hands in praise. You can rest in God's providence because God's providence, it always leads towards redemption. It always leads to the storybook ending. We can loudly and boldly proclaim and believe that the best is yet to come. Rest in God's providence because God's providence always leads towards redemption. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.